Good morning. Boy, I think I might have something to say today. And it's funny because my wife has been listening to Eckhart Tolle. And she's telling me some things that he tells us. And he's really talking about mindfulness meditation. And that ties into a lot of things we've talked about. So I'm just going to recap some things that he said. And he talks about the being, the being of life without constant judgment going on in your head of I'm too good, I'm not good enough. And I guess that's part of what we have here on the podcast. We have the, the judgment going. And I'm constantly thinking, what can I edit out? What will I have to edit out? What will I, what do I really want to say? Is it good enough? This constant judging that kind of inhibits, inhibits the speech, the free speech. And they say that the brain is full of inhibitions and inhibiting factors. That's the one study, the one book, new books that we covered a while back. And they're talking about the more complicated the brain, the more inhibitions you have. So let me just give you some updates on what's happening in my life. Well, first of all, I'm starting to love Haskell again because I had one experience that was transformatory. And it was basically that I can read parameters from the user and use those to construct a struct. And um, I was listening to Eckhart Tolle and he's talking about the here and now and how the only the now counts. That you have to be totally focused on your now because there is no past, the past is gone. There is no future, the future doesn't necessarily exist. There's only the absolute now. And he talks about people who are always just trying to get through something. It's like, I just have to do this to get there. I just have to do this unfortunate thing to get there. And how we spend all of our time living for the future instead of living for the now. And that describes me a lot, a lot of the times. And that's part of our falling forward. Coordinated falling forward is walking. But it's good to raise awareness of to become aware of the now. Now, if we get into the deeper things, if we get into the deeper things, like JavaScript is just living in the now. And Haskell is like the deep thought. And I've been reading about these different languages. Well, let's just start with, instead of trying to lift up these data structures and identify what's going on. Hmm. Instead of trying to lift what data structures, what are these data structures? Instead of well, taking compiler data structures, the introspector, like internal representations, and trying to reconstruct the compiler just based upon those dumps. I mean, that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to massage the data from the compiler into a new compiler. And this idea is flawed in a couple of different ways, but it's possible. So let me tell you what I've learned so far. Well, first of all, first of all, I, um, the data that you're presented with contains the structure of the data inside. So there's clues or hints about the data structure in the data. So bits of the data describe other bits of the data, which creates a congruence, right? A, an affinity, a constraint. And we talked about this, I know. 
This is one of the things we definitely discovered or talked about in length here. So bits of the podcast talk about other bits of the podcast and constrain them. Right? Like that would be the abstraction or the application to what we're doing. So that's the one thing. And then I was thinking, well, if I can have a self-describing data structure, like a schema, like data that has a schema. So I was thinking, well, what if I just start in Haskell and try and create this tree structure or structure on my own? So I did that. I created some example. And then I started looking... And, and you can say deriving show in Haskell. But it turns out you can derive other things. And there's ways that you can derive uh, data descriptors automatically. Deriving data and data type. And you can do things like cast. You can do typecasts. And you can do type descriptors all in Haskell. So that's pretty awesome. And you can get at fields and constructors and all of that. So... Uh, I think that's pretty awesome, and I'm going to learn how to use that. But um, really the question is, is how do we lift types up? So given a JSON descriptor, right? Oh, these berries, I love these berries. I'm starting to eat more of them. These harvest autumns, uh, autumn, what are they called? Autumn olives. I'm also eating a lot of these um, crab apples. I'm not swallowing them, though. I'm just chewing on them and then spitting out the rest. Mmm. Yesterday we went to the shore, and I realized just how much I need a vacation. So, looks like they're preparing a uh, new grave today with a burning. A burning must be an oriental, an eastern thing. So, let's um, let's go over this some more. So we have the here and now, and what we really want to do is we want to be able to take a description that's encoded in some manner and convert that into a dynamic type description that we can use in Haskell. Sure, we could just iterate over the JSON data and treat it, and the JSON has lists and objects and values, but we want to convert those into proper types. So to go between a description of the data and let's say some data type that we can operate on natively in Haskell. Now, this is where we get into some kind of recursion where we can say, this is like a new level now, next level thing for me. So you have some description of your code and that code contains embedded in it. Okay, so you have some code, let's just say you have some code C, C1, like level one code, and you dump that out using a compiler to some representation R. And that's like some sort of string, let's just call it JSON data. Or it's semantic web, it's just some type of representation that's normalized. So a normalized representation, it could be a list, lists of lists, but let's say we include objects like JSON data. So you go between a memory representation or a code representation, you get the internal compiler representation out and you put that into JSON. So, so the structure of that data is given by the compiler's internals. If you're explicitly encoding 
before that, let's just you make a struct for the fields and so forth. So now you want a function that will interpret that data and extract out another layer or level of code that's in, embedded in it. I call that C2. So you have an expanded form of a data structure where you iterate over it. It's like demarshalling it and um, you get to another level of a data structure. And my point is here that you could have in each level of a data structure, you could have another level of interpretation. So you could keep on going and then take objects of that type C2 and interpret them and get objects of C3 out of it. So you could have multiple functions that will take object descriptions of some level and return them in another level. So the Haskell reflection is just that. And in the end, I guess we're just going to call constructors again and construct Haskell objects from the data. So that's what it'll all boil down to, is constructing a set of interrelated data types. So basically, what I'm saying here is that you can, you have a graph of data types that you can interpret and it produces another graph of data types eventually. And each level will produce another level of a graph if you interpret it. I suppose this could keep on continuing. This could just keep on continuing so that you have a tree structure that if interpreted creates another tree structure that's embedded into it. And it could just be, you know, a simple structure like, oh, I have an integer constant. Let's just take that. I have an integer constant, and if I interpret that integer, integer constant, it contains code. Now, unless I know when I've compiled in the type of data that's inside of that code, I won't know. And it could be a variable integer. It doesn't even have to be a constant. It could be an integer I read in from a file, like a binary. So I read a binary in, and I try and decode that and recognize what it's doing. And if I can recognize it, I can match it to a constructor and construct it in my existing program. If I already know what the type will be and have rules for checking, basically create a parser function that will parse out that data and call constructors, create a tree, and then I can transform that to different trees. And in the end, if I want to call a C function, I construct a piece of memory that has a certain form, and that memory we packed in a certain way with this field in a certain manner as described by the compiler. And I could either read or write those data structures. So like an F foreign function interface, foreign function interface. So let's uh, think about all of it. So we compile it down to machine code that we copy onto a machine, uh, an array of bytes where we can then, which will then execute. And in the end, it'll jump back to the place that we called it. Right, so we have a calling convention for how we pass parameters in. This is like object linker level. So we get like dynamic linking, dynamic loading. So you can take some tree structure and generate a, a blob of memory that you can then execute directly. That's what a compiler is. It converts from source code to binary. This is a great picture of this uh, grass popping through the concrete. I'd like to use that as our show picture. Now, even when we're, let's say, inside of the machine executing this block, 
We could also insert breakpoints and stop the machine, or insert code that will halt the machine and inspect it. But again, those are just instructions, like stop and copy all the data and uh, send it somewhere, like take a sample, like read the data. And that will create a stream of data. Now the question is, how big of a stream do we need? What data do we really want to sample? What, um, how much data are we gonna sample? And this kind of gets into statistics and modeling. What is the input? How is it being used? So, I'm going on a rabbit hole right now. A rabbit hole. So we can create a stream of random, a stream of variables that represent details about the machine executing some program. And by knowing every step of that program, exactly where it came from, having a full traceability, we can use that to insert what variables we want to monitor and why, trace points. And that kind of gets into that language that Brandon Gregg was talking about. It's called the extended Berkeley packet filter. The one that runs in the kernel. But I'm thinking that this could be targeted by Haskell as well. It's basically a kernel plugin creating compiling kernel modules, basically. That's what it is. It's like a safe way to write a kernel module. But what if we can just create kernel modules or kernel code in Haskell that is paired with the source code of the program that runs? So like JavaScript running on the client, let's say, it could also just be a native app on the client. I've got this horrible song in my head. Oops, I did it again. And it's being sung by uh, some German guy. I think it's Max Rabe. Schmarotza. Schmarotza is a useless eater. Okay. Well, I think this is kind of neat. We're kind of getting to a more essential description of things. And I think the key here is if we know what, what created something, then we have a chance of, let's say, matching it. And if we don't know what created it, but we've seen a lot of other creations, we can start to reverse engineer. Um, machine learning, anyone? Statistical probabilities? And as I said yesterday, like, well, can we reverse engineer what the NVIDIA drivers are doing and match those to the open source ones? Like, can we generate a better machine learning implementation for, um, for a particular GPU? Can we study the code? Can we understand it? Convolutional neural networks. So these are some simple ideas, but once you go into them, they get so complicated and they start exposing more and more concepts that you need to understand, more and more details that are abstracted away, factors that you have to guess at. So some of it is like a factoring exercise and guessing at factors. And then it's like, okay, well, if I have reverse engineering tools that I can download, can I reverse engineer the reverse engineering tools and extract some information out of them? Can I reverse engineer the debugger? You know, what if I don't even use the source code? Can I just take the binaries and understand them? Or look at some super complicated stuff from, you know, the chip manufacturers? 
you know, be really bold. And I guess that's where some of my thought has been going in the past. And it has resulted in years and years of research with no results because I misjudge the fundamental complexity of all these things. But if we can reduce the fundamental complexity and say, oh yeah, well, we only have some simple records that we want to read and write, a series of fields, bits of data. So these are some interesting thoughts, I think. And you might not share that opinion, and this might all be very insane to you. So I don't know, but we're going to get back on track with Eckert, who's helping me um, feel better about things and refocus on the now instead of on the judgment. Because I was also focused on the judgment of other people or the supposed like, oh yeah, he's got audio issues or, you know, this is not brand safe content, like all those things. I would say um, we have uh, we have enough uh, backups. Let them shut us down. Well, the other thing is, is I could be flagged for my work. Okay, time to pick up the kit.